Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Welcome, everyone. Today is June 8, 2021. I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Makaran Paransp. Was that correct, sir? Yes. All right, great. And uh, Makaran Paransp, uh, who is joining us from, uh, I should have asked you, where are you at the moment, sir? Uh, we are in Shimla, which is in Shimla. In, yeah, Himalayan foothills. Okay, wonderful. So he's joining us from Shimla in the Himalayan foothills, where he is currently a director of the Indian Institute of Advanced Study. So welcome very much to the Reorient Podcast, Makarant. Happy to be here. So it's a pleasure to have you. You have uh, a very impressive resume, which I'm not going to go through now. It's on our website. People can see that. But uh, I think we agreed that we're going to start uh, with a, a wide lens before we go into the topics. And we're going to start with Asia, given the Reorient podcast is about Asia. You're in India, which is a country in Asia. So what, in your opinion, you know, what is Asia and what is a- India's role, so to speak, within in the Asian context? Wow, that's a tough one. But very quickly, if I were to sum it up, I remember Andre Gunder Frank, who wrote the book called Reorient. And his basic thesis was that Asia was the economic center of the world till the 18th century. And then he said in the 21st century, it will return to that pole position. I tend to agree because just China and India together make up about two-sixths of the world's population. That's one-third. And you add Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, all these hugely populous countries. And a large number of people actually live in Asia. But what I want to say is that Asia is a construct. Okay, It's a construct of the Europeans uh, more than you know a natural continent because the line dividing Europe and Asia is very arbitrary, as you know, mm-hmm. and it runs through big countries like Russia and Turkey. So this is a, Asia as a construct of, of Europeans, in a manner of speaking, and its diversity disallows any comprehensive or, uh, or homogeneous understanding. See, it's not like North America, where, of course, we don't want to simplify and say Canadians and Americans are the same. They're not the same, but they're similar. They're far more similar than uh, Asians in different parts of Asia are, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of language, culture, and uh, civilizational affinities. Having said that, I must also say that uh, not only is India the second most populous country in Asia, but probably the third largest economy after China and Japan. I didn't mention Japan earlier, but Japan is a vastly important and populous Mm -hmm. country as well. But India, the thing about India which makes it special is it's it's literally the crossroads to everything and everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Janet Abulagod said that some time back. So if you look at all the cross currents, civilizational, cultural, intellectual, uh, technological, scientific, political, strategic, they they all run through India one way or another. The Indian Ocean Mm. or the Indo-Pacific 
uh, which they talk about now, and the cross currents of the great religions of the world, west to east, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, east to west, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Sikhism, east to east, in India to China, Japan, Buddhism going all the way, and so forth. So it's it does occupy a, a very important position. Uh, geopolitically, strategically, economically in today's world. Mm. Now, um, India, I think it's fair to say, has historically played a very important role. You mentioned all the various religions, the faiths, uh, many of which were spawned out of India or, or um, developed, uh, you know, uh, prospered in India, flourished. And India, as, you know, as you also alluded to, was essential in, in sort of the trade routes and, uh, uh, you know, sort of cultural interactions between uh, various uh, regional geographies, say historically. So given that, what would you say India's sort of historic identity was? I mean, I, I guess sort of pre-nation state. And, and what's the concept of India and, and how do you find uh, Indianness? Yes, yes. This is a very important question. I just wanted to say that the crossroads that you mentioned earlier were also scientific and technological, like the mm -hmm. manner in which let's say, science traveled from China uh, through India to Arabia and then to Europe and vice versa. The decimal system came out of India, for example, which mm. was adopted and was crucial to the growth of modern science and the Industrial Revolution. But I think uh, faith tradition is very important because I think uh, I would define India as a deeply plural space. It's the home of mm -hmm. uh, a pluralism of a kind, which is, uh, I think, underwritten uh, both by geopiety and metaphysics, if I may put it that way. What do I mean by that? I think India is the only place, as, as far as we know, where the Jewish people were welcomed. They were not persecuted for their uh, faith, their religious traditions. They flourished for two millennia. And uh, we still have a lot of people from India who returned to Israel once mm. the state was formed. It's also the place where the Zoroastrians, when they were decimated, driven out, their culture destroyed by the invading Islamic armies, which had taken over what is currently Iran or the Persian Empire, which collapsed within a hundred years, they found refuge and were allowed to flourish. In fact, they are the richest minority in India today. Mm -hmm. And there are only 100,000 left because they have some endogamous restrictions So, and they don't yes. convert. You can't become a Parsi by conversion. And similarly, when the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans were driven out of China after China, you know, conquered Tibet, driven out of Tibet, I must say, the country was taken over. They have flourished in India and the dharma has spread all over the world, not from Tibet, mm. but from India. Similarly, I would say that, just to finish the point, I would say that the great Abrahamic traditions, populous ones like Christianity and Islam flourished in India and came up with different versions like People abroad don't know it, but in some ways, India is the home of Christian ecumenism. All the denominations which which persist 
as independent churches, I'm talking about the Protestant uh, denominations which persist as independent churches in the lands of their origin and birth, have merged in India to become the Church of South India and the Church of North India. So these are interesting moves that India allows for a flourishing, a human flourishing which is more spiritual than material, I must admit, especially in modern times. And I, I, that's why I wanted to say that whenever you talk of India, if you only talk about politics and economics, I think you're missing a dimension. Mm. You can't talk about India without talking about consciousness, because from times immemorial, people in India have wanted to understand the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, and the potential of the human being to transform into an entity uh, which is uh, somewhat different from human existence as we know it. I'm not talking about mm -hmm. these utopian experiments, but a constant mm -hmm. effort, uh, which is not religious, which is a kind of praxis. We, we, you know, yoga today, we're going to have International Yoga Day. We see yoga only as postural and hygienic, but it's far, far more important than that. And and the thing is that India is a so to answer your question, what is India? India is a civilization and currently a state too, a nation state which is the custodian of a civilization. And the civilization has a certain kind of orientation, I would say. And it's oriented to uh, you know, devoting life on earth to uh, a certain quest, I would call it that. And it is also underwritten by a pluralism and decentralization, so that the quest is not determined or dictated by a particular church or a particular centralized authority or uh, a certain hierarchical institutionality. And this actually brings us to the peculiar nature of the Indian polity itself as it is evolving today. And it's pitfalls because it is the world's largest democracy. And yet, uh, you know, one sees that the, the polity is very fraught, if not fractured, somewhat like the US between the left and the right. And we're going through such difficult times, almost like a civil war. We saw it during Trump's uh, last days. But uh, it's something similar, I would say, going on in India right yeah. now. Before we uh, you know, get into sort of modern contemporary India, I'd really like to delve in a little bit in terms of the roots, the base of this uh, Indian uh, culture, civilization, which, as he said, emphasizes plurality. I think uh, with that, a certain tolerance and uh, a certain, as you said, sort of quest for uh, – maybe an elevated sense of being. So my question is, is that based on Buddhism or Hinduism or a combination of the two? What was the relationship between there? Or is there something else sort of predating either of those religions that you think has a really deep impact on Indian uh, civilization? Exactly. See, the word religion is very, I would say, both deceptive and in some ways uh, distracting. because. I mean, we think about religion in terms of, you know, an organized church or, uh, you know, dogma, a set of beliefs. Whereas, I don't think that's how it operated in India. Very good word is dharma, which is really, dharma, yes. uh, yeah, you can call it righteousness, but it's 
it's deeper than that. It's just the way, like Tao is just the way. It's just the way to be. Mm-hmm. And I would simply put it this way, that Indians were concerned with, like the ancient Greeks were, or even the ancient Chinese, and possibly, uh, you know, all people, actually, all great civilizations were concerned with, you know, what are the conditions of human flourishing? What constitutes human flourishing? And I don't think the Indians said that material well-being was unimportant. Not at all. It was a very ancient India, classical India was a robust material civilization where human capacities reached a very high level of excellence. Given the, uh, should I say, limitations of the ancient world in terms of technology and modes of production. So it was not a civilization which ignored the material. In fact, in some respects, like textiles, architecture, sculpture, they, they, and poetry more than anything else, they achieved a very high level of sophistication and development. But the question was, unlike the Middle Kingdom or the modern West, which believes in this life or none other, uh, you know, even if there's an afterlife, I mean, seize the day and, and bodily existence as the sine qua non, that there's nothing beyond the body, you know. So eating, drinking, you know, whatever sensual pleasure, even if it's refined, constitutes, uh, as it were, the benchmark of human flourishing, you know. But uh, even if I sound as if I'm being reductive and crude, you know, all success stories are usually measured and touted in that fashion. But I don't think the Indians were deeply interested in only that because they found long back that the weather was conducive enough to support human survival without, you know, you're not going to freeze to death in most parts of India and Mm. food was plentiful. You could survive on little. And for hundreds and thousands of years, Indians wore very little clothes also, you see. So you could subsist on very little uh, in terms of your daily necessities. So the mind was freed for quests which were uh, I would say transphysical. Now, you asked about Hindus and Buddhism. We don't, I mean, of course, these got uh, politicized. And, uh, you know, once you have the census, which is a modern Western invention, enumeration, mm. then you have vote bank politics, you have identity politics, you have uh, mobilizations based on numbers. And, you know, religions get weaponized, uh, not just in terms of the jihadi weaponization that we understand, but also in terms of votes and and power politics. So if you leave that aside, these traditions were not necessarily faith traditions, but there were different approaches. Uh, practices, practices, a Praxis. I mean, in mm-hmm. other words, Hindus could be Buddhists, Buddhists could be Hindus. And what is Buddhism? Yes. It's not a belief in some transcendental reality called the Buddha. You know, it's really the dharma. So I wanted to say that these are all dharmic. And it's not just Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, but even atheism, the the so-called ancient materialists in India, because they were not immoral people. They just said that, like Epicureans, they simply said that there's no reality beyond the senses. But they they didn't say don't lead a righteous life, for instance. So I think the dharma traditions or 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 dharma is a very good way to understand indian culture uh, rather than mm. organized religion and, and to this date 
Hinduism is not an organized religion. There's no church, there's no book, there's no prophet, nor is there a central authority to tell you what being a Hindu means. And even the Supreme Court, because, uh, you know, some people went to court saying that, look, we want to consider ourselves to be Hindus. In fact, a very famous person went to court and they said, well, anybody who's recognized as a Hindu is a Hindu, you know. Anybody who's seen and recognized as a Hindu has the right to be considered a Hindu, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, certain traditions within Hinduism do have conversion or, uh, you know, your, your, your entry into the fold is legitimated like the Krishna's, Iskon has it. So it is, I would say, it is a very, very, uh, should I say, fertile cornucopia of, of like a toolkit with unlimited possibilities. You know, like Chomskyan grammar, where you have a set of rules in abstract which can create, uh, you know, almost an infinite number of practical uh, sentences, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. the rules of grammar are abstract and, abstract and uh, internalized in the psyche, but they can produce an almost, I mean, an infinite number of sentences. That's it's something like that. So I I believe that um, Gandhi was he believed that Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism were all forms of Hinduism, and so my sense is that Hinduism has a, a larger, encompassing, uh, more fluid, as you said, it encompasses a lot of different practices, and um, you could even say faith. So how would you describe Hinduism and the, the relationship between India and Hinduism, and to what extent Hinduism is representative uh, of, of India? Yes, very good question, because when we come back to Gandhi, see, Gandhi didn't only include Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism. He thought all world religions were like branches of one tree. And that one tree was God. And if you didn't believe in God, he said that truth is God. In other words, he had an atheist friend. And he started off by saying God is truth. And then the atheist said, I don't believe in God. So he said, that's all right. He says the truth is God. So in other words, Gandhi believed that there was only one human religious consciousness with with multitudinous expressions and he never he never saw religions as being in conflict but in reality you know mm -hmm. india was divided on religious lines as you know pakistan and india and pakistan was a theocratic state in a manner of speaking it was an islamic republic to start with now mm -hmm. but to come back to come back to your question you see, the word Hindu also is, is coeval, uh, if not coterminous, with India itself. So anybody who is in India yes. was called a Hindu in ancient times because the word Hindu is the same. It comes from Indus, which the Persians, I mean, Hindu, Hindu, the Chinese call Indians Hindus, you know, the I yes. and H are interchangeable linguistically. So in our ancient text, there's a Sapta Sindhu, that is the seven Sindhus. Sindhu is a river which then is called Indus River. So when people crossed that river, they said everybody who was on the east of the Indus is a Hindu. So 
technically you can be a hindu muslim a hindu christian a hindu hindu a hindu sikh a hindu parsi in other words anybody who is an indian is a hindu and the rashtriya swayamsevak sangh a very large organization today a voluntary organization uh, has this view that anybody who is an indian is technically a hindu so the word hindu is not a religious word at all and each hindu has their own faith systems belief systems and modes of practice and worship which are absolutely free to adopt so the others the critics call them cultural nationalists you see but they see themselves as the glue that keeps this society together so you know you you're back into that same fractious world of name calling and left and right because we have no word for conservative and liberal in india you know gandhi was a liberal a very great liberal in many ways and he was a deep conservative thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast to access the entire podcast and more high quality analysis on asia please visit our website reorientpodcast.com that's one word all lower caps reorientpodcast.com